following the ministry of the word, let's sing together in response Psalm 103, the stanzas 6 through 9. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in our text, we read about the covenant established with Abraham and his descendants. The covenant is a special bond with God. Nowadays, baptism is administered as a sign of the covenant in the place of circumcision. The sign is different, but the essence of the covenant remains unchanged. God not only promised to be the God of Abraham and the God of his children. He made Abraham the father of all believers and still includes their children within the scope of his work in this world. And as people of God, it's important for us to think about the riches of the covenant. And we can do that this morning as well as we reflect on the meaning of circumcision and its application also in the sacrament of baptism as it is to be administered to Asher John Vanderlinde. To guide us in this, let's listen to the word of our God. And we know him as he has revealed himself in the past. He is the God of Abraham, and he is our God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his son. Through Christ, we learn to know God as our heavenly father. And we also learn to recognize his hand in our lives today as he continues his work of grace. Circumstances change, but the Lord doesn't. Time goes on, but his word remains. It's a word of grace that is proclaimed to you from week to week. Listen and respond with thankfulness to our God. The theme for this morning is circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham. And we'll focus on two points, the meaning of this sign and secondly, the obligation that came with this sign. Circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham. We'll focus on the meaning of this sign and the obligation that came with this sign. In the passage we read this morning, we hear the Lord announcing his covenant to Abraham. This is described in the verses before our text. The Lord makes it clear to Abraham that the covenant is a covenant of grace. It originates from God. There's nothing that Abraham has done to merit this. He is a sinner. God has simply chosen him to become a vehicle of his grace to all nations. And what an amazing promise. And the Lord knows that Abraham's faith needs strengthening. Problems from day to day can lead to slackness, indifference, and even despair. And that was true for him as well as for us. 
we need the repeated assurances of his grace. And the Lord assured Abraham in more than one way. In Genesis 17, verse 5, we hear him giving Abraham a new name, Abraham. And this new name is to remind him of promises of an abundance of grace for him. This 99-year-old man is to become the father of many nations. Kings will come from him. The Lord promises to establish an everlasting covenant with Abraham and his descendants. He then institutes a ritual that is to be observed from generation to generation. This is to strengthen his faith. It's the ritual of circumcision. Our text deals with this extensively. Circumcision was not something new and foreign to Abraham. The Lord didn't have to explain to him what it was. In those days, circumcision was practiced by a variety of nations in that area. What makes circumcision unique for the people of God? The Lord makes it a visible sign and seal of his covenant promise. And what does he promise Abraham and his descendants? You can read the heart of his promise in Genesis 17, verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. That promise to be God to Abraham and his descendants is unique. They will be special to him and he will take care of them. And by connecting the promise to the ritual of circumcision, the Lord made it a sign of separation. Abraham and his descendants were officially set apart as the people of God. They bore in their bodies the sign that they belonged to him. Baptists don't see the unity and continuity in the covenant the way we do. They tend to see the covenant with Abraham sealed by circumcision as a fleshly covenant. According to them, it concentrates on earthly promises, in particular the promises of descendants and land. There is, however, a deeply spiritual dimension involved in the covenant established with Abraham. The heart of that covenant is God's promise to be God to Abraham and his descendants. They were called to believe this and confess it. Think of Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The words are flexible in Hebrew and can also be translated as the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. It's an affirmation and personal echoing of the promise of the Lord to be our God. The Jews were called to confess their faith with these words and teach it and its meaning 
to their children. The Lord is also our God. We affirm this in continuity with the Jews of the Old Testament times. Doesn't the Apostle Paul refer to Abraham in Romans 4 verse 16 as the father of us all? If Abraham is the father of all believers, the promise once given to him and to his descendants applies to our children as well. The promise of land for Abraham also has a spiritual dimension for us. Don't look at it as something specific to the Old Testament. The land of Canaan was a token and pledge of something far greater. The Apostle Paul highlights that point in Romans 4 verse 13. There he writes that the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be heir of the world. And this is consistent with the perspective unfolded by our Lord Jesus to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He spoke to them as Jews, but remember that this promise was for the followers of Jesus Christ. And as his followers, the disciples were representatives of the New Testament church. In the future, the church would be gathered in his name. And Christians are therefore heirs of the same promises once given to Abraham. We will one day inherit the earth together with believing Jews of Old Testament times. God's work of grace didn't begin in the New Testament with Jesus Christ. Look at the evidence of God's grace in our text, for example. He took the initiative with Abraham. He opened the way for Abraham to live in fellowship with him. And that's a miracle which continues to this day. We could never establish fellowship with God in our own strength. Our sins block the way to him. God takes away that obstacle. And the rite of circumcision tells us something about this. Circumcision was a ceremony involving the shedding of some blood. As such, it was part of a whole complex of ceremonies in Old Testament times. Blood flowed in a variety of ways, but it all pointed to one basic theme. We are sinners worthy of death. There can only be forgiveness by being cleansed of our sins. Our text testifies to this, where we read that God insisted on the bloody sign of circumcision. Fellowship with God involves the shedding of blood. And the blood of circumcision was a sign pointing in that direction. Christ's blood was shed on the cross for the forgiveness of all our sins. And that's why circumcision is no longer necessary in the Christian church as a religious rite. Baptism has taken the place of circumcision as the new sign and seal of the covenant. 
The water of baptism points to the glorious reality that our sins are washed away by Christ's blood. At the same time, baptism also testifies to the work of the Spirit. By his Spirit, Christ cleanses us inwardly. He renews our lives. And that promise is for believers and their children. And we need to understand and embrace that. God's covenant is described in verse 13 as an everlasting covenant. It's of eternal value. Fellowship with God is not restricted to this life. It goes on in heavenly glory thanks to Jesus Christ. And that's how God continues to fulfill the promise once made to Abraham. The promise of the covenant now comes to us through Jesus Christ. As Christians, we don't need bodily circumcision as a sign and seal of the covenant. The Apostle Paul alludes to this in Colossians 2 verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And Paul describes this circumcision of Christ in Colossians 2 verse 12 as having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And at this point, you might be thinking that this shows the difference between the circumcision that Abraham underwent and Christian baptism. After all, doesn't Paul indicate the necessity of faith? And he does. But he also makes it clear that circumcision and faith had to be linked together. Abraham received promises of grace. And without faith, circumcision would have been useless to him and his descendants. What Paul says of Jews and circumcision parallels what can be said of Christians and baptism. <clears throat> He writes in Romans 2, the verses 28 to 29, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Circumcision in itself couldn't save the Jews. Baptism can't save us either. Both point to inward realities and highlight the importance of the work of the Holy Spirit, the author of faith. God is faithful when he promises salvation. But we need to receive his promises in faith, just like God's people did in Old Testament times. And the author of the letter to the Hebrews reminds us of this in connection with the Israelites who failed to enter the promised land. God had promised to bring them there, but they didn't believe him. 
this lack of faith had consequences. We read in Hebrews 3 verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Circumcision was to be administered to Abraham and all the males of his household. And this shows us something of the extent of God's promise of grace. It's very wide. And God's promise was not only for Abraham. His children and even his slaves were to become members of the covenant. Together, male and female alike, they were to form the people of God. And the breadth of God's work of grace continues until today. He is not only our God, he is also the God of our children. He lays his claim on their lives too. And the breadth of God's work is reflected in the words of the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. Think about his sermon at that time. The Holy Spirit has come upon the church. Ancient promises have been fulfilled. And Peter calls the Jews to repent and believe so that they too will participate in this blessing. And Peter's language on the day of Pentecost is covenantal. He makes it clear that the covenant continues to include parents and their children. That's to be expected. Any divergence from that expectation would have required an explanation. How could God, who had always been the God of believers and their children, suddenly no longer be the God of their children? The Lord continues to work from generation to generation. And Peter's words reflect this. Look at Acts 2 verse 39. where he he explains that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is what has already been promised in Old Testament times. For the promise is for you, declares Peter, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And those words continue to apply today. God's grace is not less in scope now than it was at the time of Abraham. He continues to give his promises to believers and their children. And that's because you and your children belong to him. He is your God. And that good news is especially comforting to those among us who have lost a child through a miscarriage or at birth or early in life. Just like in Abraham's day, the promise of the Lord continues, and I will be their God. In his wisdom, The Lord sometimes takes a child to be with him before we are ready to let that child go. In a time of such sorrow, our God reminds us through his word that he has a bond with believers and their children. When those little lambs leave this life, we may trust that they continue to be cared for by the good shepherd. 
Circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham. We've paid attention to what this meant. Let's now focus on the obligation that came with this sign. This is our second point. The covenant of grace involves two parties. God came to Abraham and graciously made him that second party. He was not to be a passive recipient of God's grace. He had to learn to live in God's fellowship. The covenant had to be maintained by him. The two parties in the covenant are very unequal. The Lord emphasized this at the beginning of chapter 17. He made himself known to Abram as El Shaddai, God Almighty. And the Lord God Almighty is the creator of heaven and earth. He is omnipotent, all-powerful, governing all things. We are his creatures. It's grace that he is willing to involve himself in a personal way in our lives. Treasure the gift that he has given to us, beloved. He has already made this clear to Abraham, saying, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Respect him as God Almighty, awesome in strength and fearsome in his holiness. That demand continues. We need to cherish the covenant with him and live in its light. If we don't, we'll end up breaking it. And that would be terrible. It would mean losing the privileges promised to us. It would mean invoking the wrath of God upon us for spurning such a great gift. The obligation the Lord lays upon us in the covenant is a very prominent feature in our text. We see it emphasized right from the beginning of verse 9. This obedience is to be grounded in the awareness of God's grace. He stresses his initiative in extending this grace in verse 4 before our text, declaring, Behold, my covenant is with you. The covenant comes from the Lord. And in verse 9 of our text, this element emerges again. He speaks of the covenant as my covenant but then goes on to indicate that this calls for a response. We call this the obligation of the covenant. As for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. And this is not just a word for the Jews. Verse 9 no longer refers to Abraham but to Abraham. It's the first time after his new name has been given to him that it's now used as such. Abraham is being addressed here as the father of all believers. That includes us. We are descendants of Abraham in a spiritual sense. 
And this means we also have a task. God also calls us to keep his covenant. And the verb keep is stressed two times, once in verse 9 and in verse 10. In Genesis 17, verse 7 and 9, God promises to be God to Abraham and to his descendants. And that's a glorious promise. In verse 10, God demands respect for the sign of the covenant. He wants Abraham and his descendants to maintain circumcision as the visible sign and seal of his promise. By being circumcised, Abraham and his descendants showed that they accepted the covenant. They valued it and were willing to receive the sign of this promise of God's fellowship. But circumcision didn't continue to be the sign of the covenant. In the New Testament, things changed. Jesus Christ instituted a new way of indicating who belongs to the people of God. He replaced circumcision with baptism as the sign of the new covenant. That became the new special sign, distinguishing God's people from the surrounding nations. And like circumcision, baptism is a visible reminder of God's promises of grace. God is our God. And the water of baptism points to the promise of cleansing through the blood and spirit of Christ. And such a sign is very useful in our struggles against sin. It reminds us that God has opened the way for us to live in fellowship with him by giving us a savior who is willing to die for his people. We may look to him for forgiveness and for strength to live for him. And by his Holy Spirit, he unites us with himself and empowers us to live as Christians. That promise applies to us and our children. And never take that promise for granted. The bond we have with God involves an obligation. Live in fellowship with the Lord our God, acknowledging him from day to day in prayer and in daily obedience to him. Circumcision was a visible reminder of this obligation. And that's why in our text the Lord stresses the importance of the sign. Circumcision was not to be neglected. It was a sign of a calling to honor the Lord's promises and his claim on the life of his people. And the Lord stipulates in verse 12 that the circumcision was to take place on the eighth day. In the light of later laws, we understand why it was not done earlier. In Leviticus 12, the verses 2 to 3, God gave the following law through Moses. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. 
The stipulation which governed the first seven days after the birth of the male child would bar the mother from much contact with her surroundings during that time. It would also affect her child. The eighth day would mark the change in her status and therefore also that of her child. Circumcision was not something that could be postponed to an indefinite time in the future. The Lord stipulated the eighth day in connection with later ceremonial laws. On that day, the child had to be circumcised. It was the earliest possible moment seen from the perspective of the mother. Undoubtedly, she would be there and join in the celebration. And there's a ceremonial aspect in having the child circumcised on the eighth day, but this stipulation also points to an abiding principle. The principle is that the administration of this sign of the covenant was not to be delayed unnecessarily. As Reformed churches, we focus on this in connection with baptism. This idea forms the background of Article 57 of our church order. There we read, The consistory shall ensure that the covenant of God is sealed by baptism to the children of believers as soon as is feasible. The church order doesn't specify which day. That's because we are not bound by the ceremonial parts of the Old Testament law. Nevertheless, the basic principle that we already encounter in Genesis 17 is maintained. Baptism is to be administered as soon as feasible. And that's why we don't postpone baptism indefinitely. We value the covenant as a gift from God. And we therefore also value baptism as a sign and seal of the covenant. And let our children receive the sign of the covenant as soon as feasible. This is how we show our appreciation for the covenant itself. Abraham honored this principle in connection with circumcision. He didn't wait long to obey the command of the Lord. In chapter 17, verse 23, we read that he did as the Lord commanded him that very day. And the verses 26 to 27 emphasize Abraham's immediate obedience once again. It notes that circumcision took place that very day. In Old Testament times, the Lord wanted his people to be circumcised. And similarly, he wants his people to be baptized now. We notice this in the book of Acts, for example. In chapter 2, the apostle Peter proclaims that Jesus is both Lord and the Christ, the promised Messiah. And when his listeners ask, brothers, what shall we do? The apostle Peter gives them a clear command. It's recorded in Acts 2 verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with those words, Peter unfolds the promise once given to Abraham. 
God promised, I will be their God. That was a promise to be with them, guiding and protecting them. Jesus Christ has fulfilled that promise by pouring out the Holy Spirit over the church. That's how he is now with us and will remain with us. And that's a promise with consequences. It comes with a call to repentance and the obligation to receive baptism. Would it then be right to baptize infants? After all, they don't yet understand the call to embrace God's promise and repent. Well, in Old Testament times, an eight-day-old infant could not understand the promise either. And nevertheless, God commanded that the male children of believers were to be circumcised. After all, the promise was for them too, and not just for adults. And this is why he also wanted them to receive the sign of the covenant. By that sign, he was making his claim on their lives visible. The children of those believers would later have to be taught the meaning of God's promise and his demands. The promise was for believers and their children. The Lord's words to Abraham were clear. Accepting circumcision would indicate accepting the terms of this covenant. A refusal to be circumcised would be no less than a refusal to belong to God's people. That's what would make remaining uncircumcised after hearing God's promise an offense. Now, what if someone would want to belong to that people without receiving the sacrament? That would amount to wanting the privilege of fellowship with God without accepting the conditions to be met for receiving that privilege. Verse 14 of our text issues a sharp warning against the refusal to accept accept circumcision. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And those words were not addressed to unbelievers. They were for people who had heard God's promise and understood his demand. By refusing circumcision, they were rejecting the visible sign of belonging to God's people. Such a rejection would be a deliberate transgression of God's will. Baptists nowadays reject infant baptism because they don't see the continuity in God's covenant dealings with his people in Old Testament times and now. And here's an important point. Their rejection of infant baptism can't be equated with the deliberate and absolute rejection of circumcision mentioned in our text. They don't reject baptism as such. They failed to see the necessity of its application in regard to infants. And this chapter in Genesis should help us to reflect on the scope of God's work. Through Jesus Christ, God now promises to be our God. 
And let's be diligent to raise our children to know and embrace the Lord who has revealed such a precious promise in his word. He has set apart believers and their children, giving them a place as members of his covenant people. Delight in his promise of grace extended to you and your children. This applies to all believers who have presented their children to be baptized. As you parents raise your children, never forget that they belong to the Lord, first of all. Hold on to that truth as you take care of them. You do what you can to take care of them and protect them. But there's a limit to the care you can give. You can't be on guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And don't be anxious about this. Those little ones belong to the Lord. Prayerfully entrust them to his care. And as the children that the Lord gives you grow up, you have good news for them. Teach them about the love and care promised to them. Explain to them through what you say and do what this means. Teach them also what it means to serve the Lord. We affirm the importance of baptism for believers and their children. But do we teach our children consistently what it means to belong to the Lord? Do we call them to turn away from sin and to walk in his ways? Do we show them that it's a joy to live as children of God? Or do we set a bad example ourselves? And do we turn a blind eye to their misbehavior or excuse it by saying, they'll grow out of it? Do we really hope to receive salvation from God? then let's be serious about the importance of a living relationship with him. The Lord is our God. And we boldly affirm this to be true through Jesus Christ. And let's rejoice in God's grace, which is promised to us and our children. And let it be evident in what we say and do that we don't take his grace for granted. That would be a serious mistake, one with potentially fatal consequences. God is merciful. He doesn't want members of his covenant to break the covenant. And that's why he warns us in advance what the consequences are. Deliberate, persistent disobedience leads to exclusion from the people of God. And don't think that this only means being outside the church. It implies that there's no fellowship with God either. Those who deliberately reject the sign of circumcision do more than just reject something external. They reject God's claim on their lives. He has broken my covenant, says the Lord at the end of our text. 
And that covenant was a covenant of grace. What grace can a person hope for outside of this fellowship? Covenant breakers have no salvation to hope for except through repentance. That's the way back. If you have been baptized, rejoice in knowing that the Lord has promised to be your God. That's a beautiful promise. It reminds us that the blood of Jesus Christ opens the way to everlasting fellowship with God. What's your answer to that? Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Resolve to live accordingly. Amen.